ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. I can remember going on family car trips to Melbourne when I was a kid, coming into town on Sydney Road, going through Coburg and right past Pentridge Prison. Pentridge had high bluestone walls and turrets and it looked more like a medieval fortress than a jail and it always exerted a kind of dark energy. Pentridge was home for a while for so many infamous Australian criminals from Ned Kelly to Chopper Reed. Ronald Ryan, the last man to be executed in Australia, was hanged there as well as the last woman, Jean Lee, who'd been convicted of murder. Pentridge earned many nicknames. Over the years, it was called the Crystal Palace, the Devil's Regiment, the Chamber of Horrors, Coburg College and the College of Knowledge. James Phelps is here today. James is a journalist and an author who's written A History of Pentridge, the prison that began its life in 1850 as a convict stockade. For more than a century, its walls witnessed all kinds of unspeakable Speakable horrors and cruelty. And today, well, today it houses a leisure centre with boutique shops and a cinema. James Phelps's book is called Australia's Most Infamous Jail. Hello, James. G'day, mate. How are you? Fine, sir. I have been inside Pentridge momentarily, I confess, not as a crim. I was taken in there in the year 1989 to film something for ABC TV with my fellow comedians and we were sort of faking a bit of footage of us being busted out of prison. And we filmed it at night and we were were allowed to do so only under the condition that we were totally silent because we weren't allowed to let the prisoners know we were there. You've been inside Pentridge, of course. What's the best way you'd kind of describe what it was like to be inside a place like Pentridge? Well, I'm not crazy enough to have been in there while it was actually operational. Mate, it it was a seriously hard place. It's um, up there with some of the other jails in Australia, Long Bay Jail, and that was classically known as the hardest prison in Australia, and the other one was Pentridge. And I really can't decide which one was worse. I'll put them on equal to kill. And then after that, we had Grafton, which was a, a place of horrors. And now it's Goulburn. But certainly Pentridge can lay a claim to being the hardest prison of them all. Yeah. While I was in there, the, the one thing I remember about the place is one of the one of the prisoners was playing Barnsey in his cell, like full blast. And I thought, what kind of a status must a prisoner have like that to be able to play Barnsey full blast through the evening and no one <laughs> no one feels they can tell him to stop? Mate, you'll be amazed at what they can get into their cells. Um, I did a story on a guy that actually had a PlayStation in his cell at Goulburn. So. But did you notice the smell? I mean, that's one of the things that really hits me about prison when you go in is the unique smell. It's, Antiseptic smell is what I remember. It's bleach covering yeah. human odour, having that many people packed into a tight place and they just can't cover it and it's a really, really putrid sort of smell. Like I said, it's founded in the year 1850 as a convict stockade. What does that mean? How did Tell me the story of how Pentridge began its life, please. Absolutely fascinating beginning. So 12 um, convicts and a gang of guards got marched from the old Melbourne jail right up the road to uh, Coburg. It was only eight kilometres, but back then Melbourne was bush. There was only a population of 20,000. It was a little clearing beside the Yarra River. The place where they were going, Coburg, was considered an outpost. So they marched on up there, and a lot of people think that there was a jail waiting for them. No, there was nothing. There wasn't even fences. They stayed in a little slab hut, and during the day they'd go out and mine bluestone, 
for, for, for the road. That was their job anyway. But yeah, the first incarnation of the jail was nothing more than a, a, a clearing with a wooden hut. So it was a convict chain gang that yeah. that that built the road and the prison, the, the prison and the road to it, the prison that they were going to be in, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. I was humming Johnny Cash while I was writing a story, thinking I was over in America looking at strikes. But no, that's what it was. And it gets even more fascinating because when I was doing the research, I found the original 12 names of those convicts. And one of those names was Francis Christie. Now, that mightn't ring a bell to a lot of people. But when you learn that he escaped and changed his name to Frank Gardner, you will know the name. Frank Gardner is, of course, Australia's most prolific bushranger and also the guy that pulled off the Yagara rock heist, which is the richest gold robbery in, in history. After that, he disappeared to Las Vegas. And while he was over in Las Vegas, he allegedly died in his deathbed and he gave a map to his two American uh, grandchildren. And I spoke to some people in Forbes that say that they rocked up in the 20s with a gold map to Americans <laughs> and went and found the lost treasure, And which is, yeah, why I almost fell over. because so I didn't know this. I, I'd mentioned in the book, forgotten about it. When I came across it, I went, how good is this? I thought I was just doing Ned Kelly, and I found a bushranger that I think should even be higher than Ned Kelly in terms of what he did. He was the most prolific robber in history. And he was one of the convicts that built Pentridge. Yeah, absolutely. He wasn't there long he uh just he clocked the the warden on the chin and ran off into the bush and away we go so melbourne is sort of struggling along as a colonial settlement and then the gold rush happens the victorian gold rush happens a few maps are tweaked here and there to make melbourne look closer to it than ballarat which wasn't true nonetheless melbourne became a, a boom town very suddenly and fastest growing city in the british empire what did this sudden boom do to pentridge and its population james well, the, the story of Pentridge is very much the story of Melbourne. You can parallel everything that happened in Melbourne with the development of this jail. So first of all, we've got a, a population of 20,000. There's not a lot of crime, you know, free settlers doing their best. Um, then all of a sudden, gold. They come from everywhere. The population explodes from 20,000 to 100 to 200 to 300. And what comes with it, of course, is crime. And they didn't have anywhere to put them. They had the old Melbourne jail, which they thought was this new beauty state-of-the-art jail when they built it. All of a sudden, it was full. So their next solution was to put them in hulks, which were old disused ships. And of course, they were everywhere at this time because people were literally coming from the other side of the world in their ships, abandoning them there, going to the gold fields, making their fortunes and never coming back to those ships. It's kind of ironic given that the prison hulks were the reason why convicts were exported to Australia in the first place because the, the hulks on the Thames in London were full and here they are back in hulks again. And on a serious note, they were absolutely horrible. I've read some first-hand accounts and the conditions, the rats, the sewerage. I mean, it was literally horrible. But this is how we get to Pentridge. All of a sudden, they realise they've got this clearing up the road, perfect place in the middle of nowhere, which is just eight kilometres from the CBD. Mm -hmm. um, and they think, we'll, we'll, we'll put a jail here. So up she goes. And first of all, it was wooden structures, wooden fences. Um, it was never meant to house serious criminals at first, but of course it was a solution. The locals were absolutely outraged. They were having escapes every other day, jumping the fence and off you go. But what they were even more outraged with was the guards and their behaviour. They were, they were jumping the fences and nicking their livestock, um, taking their produce. It was um, yeah, every man for themselves. Wow. So, so you got a timber prison at this point, the stockade. Yeah, timber, timber. And so then we imagine what, convicts then quarried the bluestone that turned it into the kind of coldits sort yeah. of structure it became? So originally it was a bluestone mine. Uh, Melbourne is built with bluestone. Sydney is a standstone city. Melbourne is bluestone and it, it's everywhere. So that, they were mining that originally for the road, 
And then they thought, hey, we'll build a prison. But they didn't have the craftsmen yet to build what it eventually became. That also came with the gold rush. It was actually Welsh, Welsh stone masons that came over and gave that expertise. But it started with one building. And this was a little bit later on. This was in the 1860s. It started with one bluestone block. And it's quite an oddity. It, its architecture is quite different to the rest of the prison. And yeah, I can't still work it out. I've spoken to archaeologists for the book and, and they can't either. But anyway, they put that one up. Uh, it became the first wing, but quickly it was too small and it got reduced to a hospital. But that's when the money started rolling in for, for Melbourne. All of a sudden, they were the, the richest city on the planet. And they were also a very insecure city. So they've got big brother New South Wales looking down on them, thinking, look at this, they're out of control, crime, gold, all these things happening. So what they did is they used all their money to build a statement piece. So Pentridge was the first big building construction that showed what they were as a colony. And for them, they did everything in excess. Instead of building three metre walls, they built five metre walls. Instead of building buildings that, that contain criminals, they built buildings that looked like castles. They put turrets in them and places where you could shoot out your bow and arrow. Like it was just ridiculous. It was all about looking like they were powerful. And it was saying to the rest of Australia or New South Wales that we're a colony in control. Look at this. Look at that. Look at our criminals. Look how we deal with them. So you introduced the character of John Price, who was the Inspector General of Prisons in the colony at the time, who built up Pentridge into a high-security prison. You have prisoners being chained to the walls, flogging, taking place regularly. And for his efforts, he was bashed to death by convicts in 1857. And this led to a public scandal about the cruelty of the conditions in Pentridge. And I think this is where you start to raise the question of what was Pentridge for? What was it supposed to be? Simply a place of punishment or revenge against criminals for terrorising the colony? What, were, what was that kind of conversation like about the role of Pentridge in, at the time? Well, that's an interesting question because um, in all the years that we've had prisons, I don't think they even know now. Is it about rehabilitation or is it about punishment or is it somewhere in the middle? And that's changed over the years. And when they started Pentridge, it was a place of production. So that's another one to throw in there, the road Oh, like gang. a factory, you mean? Of, yeah, of with, the, with right. the building the road. It started mm. as production. But quickly, when this problem of all these criminals and how to deal with them came about, and they didn't have the facilities to actually house them and keep them under control, prison, a big part of it is having structures to control the people. It's impossible for guards, with the amount of numbers they're dealing with and the, the guard-to-prison ratio to control them, they need the structures to help them. They didn't quite have that then. So the way to deal with it was to put the fear of God into them. How do you put the fear of God into them? You brutalise them. So that's when physical punishment took over. And, and this guy, uh, Samuel Barrow, the first one, had a very unfortunate job. He had to deal with all this change and try and come up with a system to do it. Um, and they're like celebrities. They're in the paper every day, but they got bagged. They're like public servants are today. Not many people, people like criticising them. But Price came in and his solution was to build a place called the Crystal Palace. It was Australia's first punishment jail. 
and it was an absolute house of horrors. And now the Crystal Palace, that's a term of deep irony, of course, because the Crystal Palace was famously this grand Victorian glass exhibition hall in the UK, in London, that was supposed to show all the marvels and wonders of the empire, a fabulous place to relax in. So this is this is pure, ugly black humour, surely. Oh, yeah, I still don't know where the name came from. I had to research it. Some previous books have said there was a big dome over the top of this place, but no, it was, a, it was literally a log fence structure where they put walls around. It was one of the first sort of inside the walls walls. It had planks of wood that guards would walk around the top of and inside they had these carts. So basically horse carts where you could probably sleep four guys. They put 12 guys in them. And I think what the what the Crystal Palace referred to is they had an open air roof. So oh, okay. a, a piece of glass. Um, so yeah, they got light in there, but, but that's about it. But they'd sleep in these things. Sometimes the guards would just leave them in these carts for a week. They'd throw bread and water through a slot. Um, you can imagine, they were obviously performing all their bodily functions in there as well. And one of Price's punishments was putting them to the stone. And I actually never, I've heard this term obviously, but I didn't actually know it was something that had happened. What does that mean? They put people to the stone. So there was a huge stone in the middle of the yard. There was a shackle to the stone that they'd um, crafted on there with a bolt and they'd chain the inmate to the stone. And they would leave that inmate there in the elements. And you've got to remember, Melbourne's probably not the greatest weather, especially in winter. But I've got a first-hand account in the book of a guy that spent three months on that stone. And I had to have a laugh because um, this guy complained. All, all he complained about was he got the piles quite bad. And um, <laughs> he was making light of the situation. But can you imagine being out in the elements, the cramping, the trying to sleep on a stone, and you're only being given bread and water? So, yeah, it was horrible. They got a new superintendent, a man called William Champ, who decided to modernise the prison. And I think he was seen as a more enlightened figure at the time. But his idea was to build three panopticons. Now, can you explain what a panopticon is or was in 19th century, the mind of the 19th century? Yep. Well, first of all, we probably have to go back a little bit. So we, we just saw at the punishment jail over in England. We took all our cues from then, a place called Pentonville was um, created. It was the revolutionary prison. And it became part of the penitent system. We call them penitentiaries because of those religious overturns. And it was no longer a place of punishment. It was a place of reflection. Right, you, and genuine remorse. Re right. Remorse. You, right. Go, you go to jail to reflect. You'd be stripped of um, whatever you did before. It didn't matter. You'd come in there, reflect, become a new person and, and leave reformed. And but, um, but you had to feel the weight of that, I suppose, the, the weight of your crime morally upon your soul. Oh, Is that the idea? But it was right. the birth of the new age. Um, mm. People over in the the UK, in London, were sick of watching hangings every week. It, it, people started growing a conscience, I think. It's really the start of the humanitarian cause. And that, that spread to Australia. And Champ was our champion. So he was the one that decided to employ that in the system. And he came up with this system, which was used overseas. It was called the silent and separate system. So when you came in, you went into the, the separate system first, and it's quite bizarre because it's actually silent. So you'd go in there, you'd be stripped of everything, your name would even be taken away, then you'd be thrown into a cell, and you would stay in that cell for 23 hours a day, you weren't allowed to talk, make a noise, the only thing you could do was read the Bible, and you'd be let out an hour a day if you are lucky to walk around a yard, and you'd have to have a bag on your head. So no other inmate could see you. That yard was the panopticon. So, what does panopticon mean? Well, think of it as a trivial pursuit playing piece. It's a circular 
construction where there is some sort of tower in the center where a guard can watch everything at once. And what they do in that centerpiece is they have louvers or obstructions. So the the inmates didn't know if they were being watched or not. So they had to presume at all times they were being watched. So, so they can look at you, yeah, was, but you can't see the guards. Yeah, the right. all-seeing principle. It was, it was about efficiency of guarding and it was about being able to watch at all times. And and was that a moral idea or, or just a simple efficiency idea that you could you could actually uh, staff a prison with far fewer it was officers? Pa- it was part of the penitent system because you needed a bit of fear that you were being watched. It wasn't about physical punishment. It was about the godly eye, the all-seeing eye. So that, that was the theory behind it. But for some reason, Australia, we don't go all the way. We have bits and pieces. We'll take a bit of that, a bit of <laughs> We went down bit the of this. <laughs> Instead of um, building a complete jail, as a panoptical, which they did in India, it still exists today. They just built a couple of yards. All oh, right, so oh, that'll do. They yeah. go out and walk in the yard, not knowing if they're being watched, but they had bags on their heads anyway, so it didn't really matter. It was a bit of a um, bit of a novelty. You see, you see, this is seen as more enlightened, but I can start to see with this shades of totalitarianism of the twentieth century. The idea that you're constantly being watched every single moment of the day, and you're going to the whole point of the prison is not to make is not to punish you, but it's to it's, it's to turn your soul inside out to to make. You into a, a better human being. This was liberal free age thinking back then. Right. Compared to being whipped and flogged and starved and put to the stone, hey, I'll be watched. Oh, I suppose it's creeping me out a bit, though. I have to have to say, have to say, James. Now, Ned Kelly was imprisoned in Pentridge for a while. What do we know of his time in Pentridge? Unfortunately, his time in Pentridge, no matter what's been said or written, I could not find any first-hand documentation or second-hand. It's all hearsay. What we do know, and it's only because of the prison register, he was there. We, we don't know how long. I think it was only a short time. I think I think he was locked up there. He was a teenager, wasn't yeah, he? when he was about 16. Right. There's hearsay about him being um, subject to, to bastardisation, and it's very probable a 16-year-old kid going into that place, it, it would have been a horror. But he was quickly moved out of there to, to another prison, a, a, a farm, prison farm, and then he went and embarked on his life of crime. But you can say that whatever happened to him in that period, I think it was only about three months, certainly shaped his behaviour and the man he'd become. Can we um, say that Pentridge did that a lot? The the cruelty of the regime there, so again and again, turned criminals into people filled with a kind of homicidal rage. You hit the nail on the head earlier when you mentioned the names, the College of Knowledge, the Bluestone College. It Mm. was a learning place to become a criminal, not just that. People became criminals for going there, not learning, but because of the the hate they had in their heart after they left it. Now, people were executed in in Pentridge. There There was a gallows there to hang criminals, often for murder, of course. There was an official gallows. Tell me about the secret gallows that's been spotted inside of Pentridge, please. Yeah, if you if the story about the real gallows wasn't intriguing enough, um, I was speaking to the archaeologist who, who helped me along, and he spent uh, about seven years there digging up these panopticals we were just talking about um, and doing the history of the jail. One night he was walking along. Uh, it was a wing that he'd been in many times. Um, it was night. He was a little bit freaked out because it's a, a very eerie place, and he he looked up and he thought, what's that? It was a uh, metal walkway that joined two wings and he thought he could see a latch. So he oh, decided, dear. I'll grab my torch and get up there. <laughs> he walked up. Yep, it was a latch. It was welding. It was a trapdoor. 
Then he walked back over and he found the lever system. And then he also looked up and found a beam where they would have hung a rope. Now, of course, there were no executions except for the judicial ones which occurred in D-Wing. This was in another block. And it led to him to believe that they were doing um, illegal executions. So its suggestion is the prison officers were conducting their own extrajudicial, well, well, let's call them murders, really. I suppose that's what they had to be, of prisoners while they were in there. Did anyone ever speak of this? Do you, did you ever hear uh, stories from ex-prisoners of this taking place? Look, no. Um, there was a big change in society and in prisons in the 70s with the Vietnam War. So all of a sudden we had um, the, the people that wouldn't go to war going to jail. Um, you know, the deserters, as they're called. And that brought a lot of spotlight onto the prison. All of a sudden we had lawyers looking at them and all of a sudden things changed. That's when we start having royal commissions into prison. So pre-70s was the time when everything happened behind those walls. Nobody knew what was going on. Unfortunately, there isn't many of them alive. I did find John Killick. He was in there in the, the 60s. He's now in his 80s. And he did have some experiences of those dark old days. But yeah, in terms of murders and unjudicial deaths, no. Famously, Ronald Ryan was the last Australian man to be hanged in there, but then so was the last Australian woman to be executed, a woman named Jean Lee. Now, what can you tell me about her story? I had not heard of her before. It's an absolutely fascinating case. So, again, her story's been told many times, but I went through all the court documents and police statements and, and got the real story for the first time. And Jean Lee was down in Melbourne for the, the Melbourne Cup Carnival with her boyfriend and another bloke who was a punter. So they were down there gambling, and they were actually professional swindlers. So Jean Lee had been a prostitute um, for, the, for a large part of her life, came from a broken marriage, and they were playing this uh, game, they called it a game, where basically she'd seduce uh, a man that looked like he had money uh, with the promise of sex, and then they'd go back to his apartment and get him drunk, he'd pass out, steal all his money, and, and on they go. But on this occasion in Melbourne, they went and got this guy called Pops Kennedy, who's an old fella, had a lot of money in his pocket. They went back to his house and he was ended up being murdered. So they strangled him, bashed him to death. And yeah, it was a bit of a tragedy, but this is where the story gets interesting. They locked Jean Lee and the two men up. Now, Jean Lee didn't do it. She didn't bash him to death. She didn't strangle him. The cops knew that. But after seven hours of interrogation and some questionable interrogation where they were leading witness statements and showing them each other and saying, he's dobbing you in, she went, no, I did it. I did it. It was all me. And her theory was that they wouldn't hang a woman. So she thought she'd get off lightly where her lover, if they pinned it on him, he'd hang. So she was saving him. She thought she was doing the right thing. Anyway, all three of them got charged and all three of them were facing murder. So she quickly recanted that story, said she never said it. And we have this fascinating court case. You look back through court cases back then, evidence doesn't exist. Blood stains, I had a bleeding nose. Everything was based on witness statements. And the police... Notoriously unreliable. Oh, mm. who knows where they got mm. some of these witnesses from. But it was all over the shop. And anyway, they all three of them got sentenced to hang, which was an outrage. A woman hadn't been hung for 30 years. So all three for this one murder... And cue the hysterics, obviously. Jean Lee was a wreck. Um, she got put in Pentridge, a, a man's jail. And leading up to her execution, um, she just became completely insane. They had to drug her for the hanging and she was carried out. She couldn't walk. 
and they strung her up while she was unconscious and and, and dropped her. Yeah, pretty pretty tragic story. It's a dead, creepy place, Pendridge. Are there ghost stories attached to it? Do you believe in ghosts? Uh, no, but um, I've lived with a couple, nonetheless. <laughs> Allegedly, there are ghosts. I went and did a ghost tour, first of all, before I did anything with the prison. I went into D-Wing, which is home of the gallows. This uh, lovely young lady dressed up in white with her face painted and a scary mask, did all the jump scares and made up stories. This this was the best one she did. She opened a cell in D-Wing. There was a pentagram on the floor. And she said, this is Edward Lewinsky's cell. He's the satanic soldier. She goes, he was an American. He was a serial killer here. He got to Pentridge and became a Satanist. He drew this on the floor and his ghost haunts the place. So to let you really know what happened, Ed Lewinsky never spent a night in Pentridge. He was <laughs> right. in a military okay. prison. He was taken in there and hung. That was it. So, so beyond the ghost tours, though, are there stories, though, of a, uh, like there, odd figures? There is. So everyone talks about two figures in D-Wing. One's a ladylike figure who looks like she has a hat on. Some people think she's a nurse, but if you know the history of that wing, it was originally opened as a women's prison. So D-Wing, which became the Roman prison, was the first ever standalone, brand new women's reformatory. So that woman could very much be an inmate. And then the other figure that they see, they say is a child, and it hangs around a particular era under the stairs. And they think it's a kid that may have been with the mother I spoke to some inmates. They said, oh, no, that was a, um, a height-challenged individual that was actually murdered at that spot in the – that's where the hole was. So if you believe in that thing, but I've got to be honest with you, I spent a lot of time there and I did not get one <laughs> single creepy feeling, which is funny because you get those feelings somewhere, but a place of such torture and despair, No. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. As part of your research, you spoke to a former convict there, a man named John Killick. Tell me his story and his experience of Pentridge, please. Ah, John Reginald Killick, better known as the helicopter guy. Everybody will know him. In 1999, he was the man that convinced his lover to hijack a helicopter with a gun and spring him out of a prison. Not just any prison, Silverwater, a maximum security prison bang centre in the middle of Sydney. And what were their anti-helicopter defences like? Uh, not not <laughs> very good, days. but hey, this gave world headlines all yeah. around the world. It was one of the most famous escapes that we've had. Everyone thinks of John Killick as the Houdini of Australian escapes. Well, I can tell you, he had plenty of practice. He wasn't real good at it. Long before he was escaping Silverwater with um, his lovers and, and hijacked helicopters, he was trying to get out of a hellhole called Pantridge. So poor old John, um, you know, he got into crime in an unfortunate way. It was, you know, through a family tragedy. He ended up extraditing New South Wales, went down and robbed banks in Victoria, and he wasn't real good at that either. He got caught pretty quickly, and he ended up in Pentridge. He decided straight away that he didn't like it one bit, so he decided he'd try and escape. And how did he try and do that? 
Well, unfortunately for him, it was just after Ronald Ryan and, and Peter Walker had escaped and they shot a guard tragically to death when they did it. So security was tight as. So we're talking about the really late 50s, early 60s it's here, early right? 67. Right, 1967. Okay. 67. And John went down to the yard and casually said, so uh, what are your chances of escaping? And um, the guy looked at him and said, not good, mate. Like, you know, seriously, if they knew what we knew they probably would know that John Killick would try and find a way. And that's what he did. He sat there and examined the systems, looked for a weakness. First of all, he said, get out of your cells, not a chance. He looked at the yards, two guards, towers, five-metre walls, not a chance. Escaping from the prison was impossible. You think that's where the story would end? No, not in the prison. That was the key word. He worked out a weakness in uh, the, the system where you get taken out for police interviews or to court. They weren't handcuffed. Um, there was only ever one guard. And they're literally taking guys on a bus and dropping them off at police stations or courthouses. He thought, this is going to be bloody easy. So he came up with this ingenious plan where he would throw pepper into their face. Now, I said, John, are you serious? That, that sounds like some sort of cartoon with Scooby-Doo and Donald Duck. I mean, that, that doesn't work. No, oh, no, it's full on. Have you ever had it in the face? Anyway, he, he didn't get that pepper because the, the cook dobbed him in. So he never got to try right. that one. <laughs> I mean, that, that's as far as it got. He didn't get hold of the pepper. Yeah, so right. they put him in a dog box, put him in mm. chains. But after a while, they relaxed that and he thought, I'm going to have a crack at this. He got to court. He was given his sentence. He said he didn't care. He wasn't even listening. He got seven years. He thought, whatever, I'm going to out of here in a minute. As soon as the judge finished with him, he did the bolt. Now, he talks himself up a little bit, John. Um, he says he was so fast that no one would catch him, so fit, all he needed was half a yard head start. Well, John got his half a metre head start, and then he was crash-tackled from behind down the stairs. Now, he says that he was so unlucky because he found the only person in Victoria that knew how to pull off a classic <laughs> rugby league cover tackle. But that's where the story gets a little bit serious because the, the, the punishment for John for that escape was being sent to a place called H-Division. Now, H-Division, this is the notorious wing of Pentridge Prison. It's well-known inmates included Christopher Dale Flannery, a.k.a. Rent-A-Kill, one of uh, the notorious hitman, the Russell Street bomber, Craig Minogue, Hoddle Street Killer, Julian Knight, Chopper Reed, people like that. What was the idea behind H Division? Okay. So this place they called hell, and it really was. It was literally the worst punishment jail in Australian history. Forget the Crystal Palace, this place, absolute nightmare. And in the 50s, they did a complete U-turn and went back to the punishment system. Now, this was a knee-jerk reaction again, like, like most of these decisions were. A guy called William O'Malley escaped and a guard was shot in the process. And this came after a string of escapes. The, the government was literally embarrassed. They said, come up with a solution. So their solution was to block off a section of a wing. It was only 39 cells. Originally, it was only 20 cells. So they halved cells. The cells were two metres by one metre wide. Right? And they thought, we'll put anyone that mucks up in there and we will just brutalise them. Two metres by one metre. Yep. It was barely big enough to fit a bed in. The windows were right up the top, tiny little slits. They actually painted them out so they, that they wouldn't let light in. And it was a system as much as it was a jail. So they were given 17 pages of rules. It was about saluting the way you walked, the way you marched. You had to bring your arms up 30 centimetres. Any single infraction was punishable by a bashing. There was an induction system into H Division known as the Licorice Mile. What was the licorice mile? Started off with reception biff. So every inmate was marched into this little room. There was a cross 
embroidered on the carpet. That cross is still there today if you go there. They were told to stood on that cross and strip. As soon as they stripped, there'd be up to six guards that would absolutely kick the you-know-what out of them. They'd use battens and whatever else. And they, they were wanting to make the inmates scream. So if you didn't scream, they'd keep on going, trying to humiliate you and make you look weak in front of the other inmates because they could all hear it. And this is just like a matter of procedures. This is not for any infraction of the No, rules. this was just part of the this system. I'll get to right. why they made the system in a second. The second part of it was called the licorice mile. So you're naked. And you are marched around the two tiers of the cells in front of all the other inmates who are watching you out their window. And while you're walking around naked, they're hitting you in the bum with battens on the back of the legs saying, scream, scream, you girl, you're weak, or whatever it was, because they wanted the other inmates, they wanted you humiliated. Simple as that. They wanted to humiliate you. Now, after that, you got put in a cell in solitary. You didn't get let out for four weeks. You were kept in there on your own, completely isolated. And then when you did get let out, so you think about being let out into a yard, the yards in H Division were the size of a lounge room. They were made for one. They were open air. The inmates were let out there at 8am and their job was to break rocks all day. So you think of a yard as this huge place. Now it was this tiny little area. All these bluestone blocks would come down a chute and you had to pick up the Big sledgehammer first thing, first shift. And for three hours, you'd smash big rocks into smaller rocks. There was a guard watching from above with a Ruger. If you took a break for a second, he'd fire a warning shot. If you did it again, they'd either shoot you or come in and bash you. You got the break. And then the afternoon was a bit easy. You got to sit down and get the little hammer and break those big rocks that become smaller rocks into even smaller rocks. So, so, we're, so we're right back here to the convict origins of Australia, that kind of Norfolk Island, yep. Port Arthur kind of cruelty that's being in, inflicted here. And the, we don't know if those rocks were actually being used in any construction. Right. There's a feeling that it was just simply for punishment. Pointless. Now, right. I'll tell you why they did all this. Because these were horrible inmates in Victoria. The jail was out of control. Crime was him. And we're talking about some serious, serious criminals, serial killers, madmen, Think of yourself as a guard trying to control that in the rest of the prison. They couldn't. So H Division was a place to terrify people. They wanted everyone in the jail to experience H Division once. So if you came out after three months, you'd behave. So there was no idea of redemption of the convict. There was no idea that after this this terrible treatment, the convict would get on his hands and knees and beg the system. It was self-preservation for the guards. It It, was a way uh, of them ensuring their own safety. And what effect did it have on the men that eventually came out of H Division alive. They went mad. And you've got to read John Killick's story in the book because um, he he talks about the effects of, first of all, the solitary and not being able to speak. He was a fantastic gifted singer before he went there. After a year in H Division, he lost his voice. He couldn't sing, still can't today. He still has um, problems speaking. He, he, he whistles and stutters. And he said that place made him into a killer. He literally wanted to come back when he got out. He, this is even years later find the guy that, that brutalised him and he wanted to kill him and he wanted to do it in front of an audience. And John wasn't a wasn't a murderer. He wasn't a killer. He was a, a bank robber that had never used violence, never had a loaded gun. He left H Division ready to kill. Jika Jika was the new improved H Division, opened in 1980, reserved for the worst of the worst, and it was inspired by the Katingle Supermax prison in New South Wales. What was it made these prisons these new Supermax prisons so distinctive, James? Well, this Jika Jika was the brand new system and it was about technology. So if anyone's aware, there's a place uh, at Long Bay Jail that they built called Katingle. It was opened in 1979 or a little bit earlier, I think, and it was revolutionary. It used technology, cameras, 
locking pneumatic locking doors that were operated by remote. So the idea was that the guards didn't have to have any interaction with the prisoners and the prisoners could walk around in this clean, sterile environment, all air conditioning coming in, and they'd just be let through different sections by buttons. It was going to be great. So it's like that movie Ghosts of the Civil Dead, yeah. that, right? That kind of system where the what the, the guards are getting. And we're back to the Panopticon, are we? It's the electronic version. And they can't be seen, but they can enforce their will upon the prisoners by remote control. And it was Katingle was built and the government and everyone involves putting, oh, look how great this is. People walked in straight away and said, this is a human rights violation. It's disorientating, dizzy, all the walls were white, no fresh air. And they went, oh, really? Like They, they thought they were really going to get applauded for it. But anyway, a crew from Pentridge, including uh, the minister, went there and they sort of thought it was great. And they started building their own. Anyway, six months later, uh, a guy called Russell Cox, he, he escapes from the unescapable contingle. The place is a disaster. They shut it down. Multi-million dollar thing. Down in Victoria, they're, they're halfway through this $20 million build. They go, ah, da, 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 nothing to see here. And they continued on with the, with the electronic zoo. They opened it and it ended up being one of the biggest catastrophes or the biggest catastrophe in Australian penal history. How so? Uh, a group of inmates um, who, who weren't being supervised because of that separation um, ended up barricading themselves in. They, they used a tennis court net, uh, the wire, to, to jam the pneumatic doors shut. They were able to accumulate that much burning material because they absolutely weren't being watched and they set a fire in there. These guys, um, one of them, if anyone's seen the movie Chopper, Jimmy Lufton, he was actually one of the main instigators. Uh, a guy called Robert Price got denied being moved out of Jika Jika. He was supposed to get out and he hated it that much. He decided to set the fire. I think he knew he was going to die. The rest of them certainly didn't. Anyway, they, they got some hose from the, the laundry and they stuck it in the sink thinking that would they'd be able to breathe, but it was all recirculated air. The fire went up, seven of them died of smoke inhalation. The rest of the people in the other wings of the prison were very lucky to get out. And yeah, it was one of the the most publicised incidents. And yeah, I, I spoke to the guy that actually knocked back John Price's request, which prompted it. He was there the day before. He was also the guy that led the investigation into the aftermath. And he says some pretty damning stuff. He said the whole thing was a disaster. I think this is always expressing a, a point of view on human nature to some degree, isn't it? It seems to be like the whole idea of what human nature really is or the nature of the, uh, of the criminal identity keeps changing uh, as with all these changes in the prisons. Well, you've, you've got these administrators that are trying to be innovators. They're trying to do good things. We've got this technology, let's, let's create a system. But unfortunately, in a place like prison, when things go wrong, they go really wrong. It's, it's not really a place to muck around with things like that too much and... Um, yeah, Jika Jika was torn down, unfortunately. I, I think they should have kept it just as a testament to um, that, that history and why we need to probably think things through and not make knee-jerk reactions. You spoke to Andrew Kirby. He's an important figure in many ways. Uh, his life story is featured in that kind of classic Australian movie, Romper Stomper, which, that sort of brought Russell Crowe to public prominence about kind of Melbourne's Nazi skinhead scene in the late 1980s. Andrew was 14 years old when he committed his first armed robbery. How did he find his way to violent crime at such a young age, James? Yeah, his story is quite, quite sad, quite remarkable and quite inspiring in the end, but his life just got turned upside down when he was 14. He was bullied relentlessly throughout his childhood. His parents broke up. 
and all of a sudden it became too much. He grabbed his backpack, shoved a few of his favourite things in it, took off onto the streets and ended up in a place called St Kilda. So all red lights and temptation and, and no money. Um, he ended up getting a girlfriend that was a prostitute and he ended up in a squat house with some older men in their 20s and 30s. They were thugs. So he, his first induction into crime was doing homosexual bashings. So they go to St Kilda. Um, he was used as bait because he was a young, good-looking kid. Um, these men would come down and proposition him. They'd, they'd bail this guy out, put him in a car, and then they'd extort them. They'd, they'd bash them no matter what, and they'd empty their bank accounts. From there, it progressed into armed robberies. He was just 14 as well when he did his first armed robbery. He ran into a, into a factory with a shotgun and his job was to shoot anything that moved. And he said he would have shot anyone that stuck their head up. Like he had no concept back then. He was trying to impress these older guys. Next thing, he ends up in boys' home. And this is where his, his story really takes its own. He was sexually assaulted. It was an infamous place called Tirana, subject of royal commissions and all sorts of lawsuits now. He used to, to wee and poo in his own room because he was terrified of leaving it. And you put all these things together, bullied his whole life, then sexually abused. He, he was after protection more than anything. So when he got out of boys' home, he ended up with a racist group of skinheads, huge guys, swastikas all over them. He didn't know what any of that meant. He just felt safe. I suppose he had a lot of rage too, and they offered him very specific targets for that rage, to channel that rage. He just was happy that the violence was going elsewhere and not towards uh. him. And it's a classic case. All the bullies have been bullied themselves, I think you're fine. But what they did, they went on this rampage, which I didn't know was true. I thought Romper Stomper was fiction. But anyway, they turned the streets of Melbourne into a war zone, a six-month period, where they'd go on, they'd start in the city, they'd get on the northern train line, Literally a gang of 20, sometimes up to 100 when they come from interstate. Anyone that they saw was not white. They'd jump off the train and beat the living hell out of them. They also murdered a number of people. They burnt down synagogues. They ran rampages through Chinese restaurants. It was just complete madness. So he was put in Pentridge at the age of 17. The H Division at the age of 17 I wonder what effect that had on him. It just further intensified his alienation and rage and I don't know. It's the classic story of how would I go if I went to prison with Andrew because he's a 17-year-old, he's put in a bus and he's got a predator that's at him the whole way telling him he's going to sexually assault him as soon as he gets there. Andrew doesn't know what to do. He doesn't even think he's going to pantry. He thinks he's going back to the boys' home. Anyway, he decides to take action. He's given a meal before they go into the main jail. It was a metal knife. He He turned around and plunged it through this 40-year-old's neck. And after that, he got put in H Division and he became a guard's favourite. And uh, probably the worst thing that happened to him, he had swastikas all over him. Obviously, he was a, a Nazi racist scumbag, actually. I'll call him that um, at the time. But the romper stomper came out and all of a sudden they thought they were famous and they were put in the spotlight. So the guards decided that they'd fix him up. They put this white supremacist with all the Nazi tattoos into an Aboriginal-only wing. What became of him there in that wing? First first night, a, a squad came in um, with shivs and kettles. He almost died, but he actually armed himself and he stabbed probably three, three or four of them. But this is what I love and that's why I said it's inspirational. These same group of Indigenous inmates that tried to kill him 
Ten years later, they picked him in the all-Indigenous AFL prison side to play on their team. So Andrew, at this stage, had had all his swastikas removed. He yeah. just worked out what he'd done. How did that happen? How did he wean himself? Or did someone help him wean him off his, that kind of, the Nazi racism of his early teens? It all started breaking down when the leader of their gang got exposed as a sexual predator. Um, he was in a court case and he'd been molesting young boys. The older crims just put their foot down and said, you're off. They were going to kill him. He went into protection. As soon as that happened, the myth started being unraveled. Andrew started thinking about what he'd done. And the older crims, to their credit, these were some painters and dockers. And, you know, they really said, mate, that's, that's just not on, mate. You know, you know, they told him what it was. And he learned that, you know, colour of skin didn't matter. And I actually mates with him now. He's only been out of jail for four years. But what's his life like now? It's still a struggle. I went back to Pentridge with him. It was one of the most heartbreaking things ever. It's now a development site with hotels and mothers pushing prams. He, we walked through the gates and he was sort of cowering. I said, what's wrong? He goes, I don't feel I belong here. So, yeah, an inmate in Pentridge didn't belong because people look at him. He, he looks like a criminal. And morally rehabilitated by some painters and dockers. That's amazing <laughs> yeah. uh, to some degree. And do you, what's your sense of that? Do you feel it's genuine? Is he, is he, how does he feel about his his past now? Oh, he's completely open there. And you know, I know when dealing with these people, if, if they want to go to the hard truths and be honest about it, especially when it's uncomfortable, um, but the most beautiful thing he said was that the, the, the turning point from him, he, he built an imaginary uh, imaginary village in his head. So he said, I put all the nice people in. I built the things that I wanted brick by brick. I made the perfect community where no one was enemies. There was no bullying, no friends. And he said, whenever life gets hard for him now, he goes back into his head, into his village and, and hangs out with his people. You know, this is a classic um, Renaissance thing from the Renaissance. You could build what's known as, I think it's Giordano Bruno called it a memory palace. Yeah. You just do that when, you, when you've got nowhere to go and you can use it to remember things as well. You just construct it. So that's what he did oh, in, in isolation, was psychologist after it. And it's a technique that he's used. A psychologist didn't tell him about it. And it's funny. I said, come on, Andrew, how many times have you nuked that village? And he said, that's nah, all right. They spawn back straight away. <laughs> <laughs> in his own head. So the prison's closed in 1997. After 146 years, and it's turned into this luxury destination. Is that what you'd call it now? What I haven't been there since. Yeah, it's... I had some great fun with it. I'd ring up. Can people... you get a soy latte there these yeah, days? I'd ring up people like John Killick. Are uh, the hotels on the top of B Block five star hotel? I go. What are you blokes complaining about? My five star sells pretty good. I think I like this Pentridge place, but it's. Uh... I, throw, I like it. I really, I, I, thought, I was thinking about buying a unit there. Like, I loved it that much. It's got this history. It's got a microbrewery in one of the old buildings. There's a Pentridge microbrewery, yeah, right? Yeah, in E-Block, which was oh. this house of horrors. Um, <laughs> the people walk around completely unaware of the history, but it's just, you know, for them, it's just a cool sort of novelty thing. Go figure. Ned Kelly's body was known to have been brought to Pentridge after his execution at the old Melbourne jail way back when. Tell me the story of what happened when archaeologists went looking for it as part of the kind of the uh, reconstruction of Pentridge. Yeah, they thought it'd be a nice, easy job that they'd um, exhume Ned and then give him a proper burial before the construction start. Nothing straightforward in Pentridge. So as soon as they started digging, they realised that the bodies weren't where they should be. Long story short, it took them seven years to locate that grave and it was only through a bobcat driver who stopped because they all knew that Ned was buried somewhere and they all bought into this. He stopped instead of putting the, the digger through it 
And anyway, they uncovered Ned all this time later and, yeah, he got, got his proper burial and um, you can now actually visit his grave. But all those poor suckers that went there where the Ned Kelly tombstone was thinking that oh, they were looking at, you know, paying their respects to Ned or looking over it, there was nothing there. All this time, it, it, was, it was never there. Does Pendridge still have... I mentioned right at the start that it kind of exerted this evil energy when I was a kid driving past it with the family on the way into Melbourne. Does it still exert some kind of unseemly energy about it despite the the gentrification of it today? I don't think so. And I think part of that is because we always wanted to know what was behind that wall. It was the fear of not knowing and wanting to see. Now that it's open and you can see over the other side, I think it kind of takes the allure away. And especially when what's on the other side is uh, five-star hotels and lattes and gelatos. (laughs) And still we never really have figured out what prisons are for, it seems whether they're there to deter, to punish, to exact revenge upon criminals for terrorising society or to rehabilitate them. Depends on the social mood and the government that's in place. Um, But certainly in my experience, rehabilitation is not a big part of the agenda and it's not a place of rehabilitation. Career criminals go there and think of it as, as school. Drug addicts go there and com- you know they, they continue with those drug behaviours. And the psychopaths will always be psychopaths, but no one's really worked it out yet. It seems that even the people you spoke to who were rehabilitated didn't get rehabilitated by the system, but rehabilitated by something else that came along. They came to a realisation that their life was going to be this horrible cycle of hell unless they broke themselves out of it. And it took a lot for them to do that. And not many have been able to. James, fascinating speaking with you. This is such a great yarn. Thank you so much. Absolute pleasure, mate. I hope I uh, didn't bore everyone too much. No, 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 I kept awake. I managed it. (laughs) Thanks so much, James. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.